didn't get to stay. So I, I was telling this story to Connor, my other twin, and halfway through the story, Matthew comes in, and he says, are you not finished? I said, no, we're about halfway through. And he said, can I stay for the second half of the story? And because I'm a wussy dad, I'm like, sure. You know? <laughs> my wife comes in and sees him, and she goes, what's he doing in here? And I said, well, he missed the first half of the story, so I thought he could stay for this. She says, no. <laughs> Matthew, you're in timeout. So he does the full-on walk of shame. Get this. My other seven-year-old, he sees that I'm sad for Matthew. He, turn, he says to me, hey, Dad, if you don't hold him accountable, he's never going to learn the consequences of his actions. <laughs> That's a true story. My seven-year-old told me that. Because awesome. we all know we need to be held accountable. Now, that doesn't mean that that same seven-year-old was going to ask me to hold him accountable. But he knows that it's in their best interest. And our employees do too. And yet we still opt out because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> what is going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining yours truly, Ryan Caligiuri, on this week's episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where you know what we do every single week. Every single week I'm reading a book, condensing it down with core golden nuggets, bringing the author on the show to have a conversation about the golden nuggets, and I'm here every single week just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. Man, it's a mouthful week after week. And uh, again, if you're listening to the show, you like what I'm putting out there, then please go online, rate and review the show. When you rate and review on uh, Apple Podcasts, whatever, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, send me a screen capture of your rating, of your review, send it to podcast at and I'll make sure you get entered into the draw every single week for a prize. If you are listening on Spotify, SoundCloud, anything else that doesn't allow you to rate and review the show, then at least just send me an email at podcast at and let me know how much you love the show. And again, I'll make sure you get entered into the draw. This quarter's draw, I'm giving away $1,000 of cold, hard cash to a lucky listener. So get your entries in. I'll make sure we do the draw at the end of June. Also, don't forget to connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let me know that you found me through the show and just say hi. And also the last thing, do not forget, I am doing the written summaries again. So many of you have already opted in to get the summaries every single week. I'll be sending it out shortly. I have this policy of zero mass email, but this is one of the only ones where I'm going to really do that because you requested it, you're opting in, so I'm going to send it to you. But I'm careful not to abuse that and sending too many marketing messages. I'm only going to be sending this out to you. If I send any other emails, it's only one-to-one. That I can guarantee you. So I'll be sending those out shortly. I'm thinking about doing them bi-weekly only because I don't want to spam you every single week. All right, this week, what are we focusing on? What book are we talking about? We are talking about The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. I'm so excited to finally air this episode. So many of you, it's actually shocking how many of you have read his books and call Patrick Lencioni one of your most favorite authors. Obviously, it means a lot to him. He's doing great work and he's putting out great concepts in the marketplace that are helping a lot of organizations deal with leadership challenges, deal with culture challenges, HR challenges, hiring challenges. And five dysfunctions of a team, it's one of those philosophies, one of those approaches, one of those concepts that I myself use on a regular basis. I think anybody who works in a team, who wants to communicate effectively as a team, who wants to have effective teams in general, this philosophy by itself is so critical. If there's one book that I would recommend to anybody, if somebody came to me and said, Ryan, you have to recommend one book, one book, only one for somebody who wants to understand how to have a high-performing team, who wants to create a high-functioning team, a team that works very together, a powerful team that becomes a competitive advantage for my company, what book would you recommend? Easy. Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's just that simple. If you've read it before, then you know how impactful this philosophy is. If you haven't, then it's going to be a treat. And what I'd recommend all of you do is please just send this to your coworkers. Send this episode to your team, to your coworkers, your friends, your family. Get it out there because the more people understand this concept that we're going to talk about in the episode, the better your team perform, the better results you'll get, and to me, the more fun you'll have at work, which is, of course, one of the most important things. So in any case, enough jibber-jabber. Let's crack right into this one. This is Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I'll catch you back here at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Pat, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. It's great to be here this morning. For people who don't know you yet, Patrick, and I don't, know, don't imagine there's a whole bunch of people who don't know who you are. You've been around for a long time, written a whole bunch of books. But for those of people in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation who don't know who you are, give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you do. 
So I'm a, uh, I have a, a consulting firm out here in California called The Table Group, and I am an author and a, and a speaker and a consultant, and I run my own firm, which I love doing the most. And, that, and uh, we, we just help CEOs and leaders make their teams and their organizations more effective, healthier, essentially. Mm-hmm. We call it organizational health. And that's what we're committed to because we think people should have a good experience at work, and, and the companies that have the best, the healthiest cultures are the ones that actually win. Mm-hmm. And so I have a wife and four kids, and I'm involved in my church and in, my, and in the community here, and I, I'm, I'm very awesome. blessed. And awesome. I love being on, on programs like this where people are really hungry to learn. So when it comes down to our focus for today, which is obviously the five dysfunctions of a team, what led you to create that book in the first place? What patterns did you see and why did you feel it was important to create that book and get it out there? And obviously it's, it's doing well. We were just talking earlier, what you've just hit 3 million sales of, of this book. So obviously doing well. It's obviously resonating with a lot of people out there. So why did you create it? What patterns did you see? Well, you know, it, it, I have to go back. To, so this is the third book I wrote. I have, I think, 11 or 12 now. And the first book I wrote was called The Five Temptations of a CEO. And I wrote it by accident. And I was just working with uh, a bunch of different CEOs. And I was noticing, and I came up with this pattern, just literally watching this one CEO. It started with him. And I just thought, this guy doesn't really care about results. He cares about his, his ego, his status. He just cares if he looks good on TV. And then I thought, well, that's the problem with CEOs. They're all status-oriented. Then I said, well, but the guy that before him didn't care about status at all. Why did he fail? Oh, he was, he was actually was afraid to hold people accountable because he wanted to be their friend. Oh, interesting. Well, why would he do that? Well, this other guy, and I came up with this theory of these five things. Well, I wasn't going to write a book. I wasn't an author, Brian. I was just observing things in companies that I worked in and other companies where I did free consulting to. This was before I started my practice. So I, I wrote this theory on the board, and I shared it with people in my office. And a year later, people were quoting it back to me. And somebody said, well, you should write a book about this, or somebody else is going to. And I thought, oh, man, that would be a bummer if somebody else did. Okay. (laughs) So I sat down and wrote this fiction story called The Five Temptations of a CEO. And then we started our firm, and and a few years later, some of our clients were coming back to us and going, you know that thing about leadership, that CEO book? It actually applies to teams, too, we think. And we're like, oh, my gosh, it does. So we adapted it to the five dysfunctions of a team, and that's where this came about. So it was originally a leadership theory. But it would make sense that it would, reply, it would apply to groups of leaders. And so we tweaked the model based on what we were seeing, and that's how this came about. Personally, I use the five dysfunctions of a team on a regular basis when I'm communicating with a team, when we have some conflict. And when new people come into an organization and there's conflict, they sit there and they're like, oh my gosh, what's, what's going on here? And I always have to go back and I have to reference five dysfunctions of a team. And I say, guys, at the very base, you know, we have trust and which allows us to yeah. have open conflict. And so I'm always referencing this and it's just such a, it's, it's very simple, but it's so important for all teams to adopt. So that's why I'm excited to get you on here to talk about it today, because maybe people have read the book and they've forgotten about it, or maybe people have never heard about it in the first place. So if you haven't heard about it and you haven't put it into practice, it could be a potential game changer for you and your team out there. Well, the, the title of your show, the, the Cut the Crap, is so important because it, the things I do are very simple. And mm. it's like, let's cut to the heart of this and get to the most important basic things that we have to practice every day. And I think we had no idea how much readers and listeners would respond because they're like, please give me the essence of this because I don't need, you know, implementation science is so important. And if you can help me understand something and put it into practice, that's going to be great. So I purposely kept my book short and I just kept it to the essence of what it was about. And people seem to have responded to that. So you know what, Pat, let's crack right into this one. So golden nugget number one, before we get into the meat of the book, I want to talk a little bit about why teamwork is the ultimate competitive advantage. Because when it comes down to it, great teams, well, they really amount to more than the sum of their individual parts. And you can really see this on you know, hockey teams, basketball teams, where you have a cohesive team of average players that will routinely beat you know, a team of all-star players. You know, they don't work yeah. together, but these all-stars, they're great individually, but together as a team, they don't really function that well. So uh, what makes a team that works so damn well together, so powerful? Um, how does a team become that ultimate competitive advantage for an organization? You know, the, when it comes right down to it, they just get more done in less time and with less distraction and politics and drag mm. than others. And, and in the end, that's what makes all the difference. They, they practice better. They, they, they put things into, they implement things better, and they don't get 
bogged down and bummed out and distracted by things that other teams don't. One of the best sports examples of this, and I have talked about the Canadian hockey team and, and, you know, in the Olympics when, gosh, who was it that that let the puck go through his legs to go to somebody else. It was, I can't remember. Oh. I should know who this was. It was one of the great players, and, and I'm, I should remember, but now that I'm on, live on your show, <laughs> of course. I don't. You'll remember but, afterwards, but the, yeah. <laughs> yes. He, but the, uh, but the, um, the best example comes from the world of baseball, which is less team-oriented than other sports, but the best record in the history of Major League Baseball, no, very few people know this, is the Seattle Mariners. They won the season. They won more games than any team has ever won. They did it the year after they lost three players, Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey, and Alex Rodriguez, all of whom are Hall of Famers. Mm -hmm. The year they cleared out three Hall of Famers, they had the best year in the history of the sport. And, And again, it's not that those guys are bad guys, but the sum of the parts matters more than the stars. And this is true in every company I work with, too. I work with Southwest Airlines. They do not have any famous people. If the CEO walked into your office tomorrow, you wouldn't know who he was. They just know how to get more done, and they, they compete against organizations with, with people with PhDs and with, come from famous companies and with, they're supposed to be so smart, and somehow they just get more done. And that's what teamwork is about. And you see it in sports every day. You see it in the military. You see it in corporations. You see it in schools. It's not about the individual prowess. It's about how you can put it all together so that one plus one plus one equals 12 mm-hmm. rather than two and a half. If you have an individual that's you know, a very polarizing figure, somebody who is very well known in the marketplace, somebody who's got a great reputation, they're an all-star. Are you saying that maybe an all-star can't become a team player? I think it's ridiculous. Of course, an all-star can become a team player. Of course. Uh, but does sometimes that ego get in the way? Like, what do, you, what do you find when an organization is struggling right now and they have people in their, on their team who have egos? You know, they're not really buying into the team dynamic. What do you recommend to them? How do, how do they deal with that? Well, I think what you have to do, Alan Mulally, the guy who turned around Ford, has become a friend of mine recently. And he's the one who turned them around in the worst time. It was a, it was a remarkable turnaround story. And he was tr- he's truly a great leader and a humble leader. And when he went to Ford, he just went to people and said, listen, this is how we're going to do this. It's going to be one company. It's all about the company. It's not about us as individuals. It's not about our division or our department. And he fired very few people. Hmm. But when he saw them violate that, he just went to them and said, listen, it's okay if you want to act that way. And people go, really? That's really? And he'd say, yeah, you don't have to work here. But it's going to, and he didn't do it in a passive aggressive way. He was very joyful about it. And most people quit or changed. Hmm. And, and the thing is, it's okay. An all-star can be a great team player as long as they know there's going to be no tolerance for doing things that are in their best interest at the expense of the team. Hmm. It's as simple as that. Hmm. And that's the thing. An all-star that says, well, I want to keep up my statistics or my division or my salary and my bonus and my um, status in the organization, and as long as I can do all that, I'll do what's right for the team. Mm-hmm. No, not going to work. Mm-hmm. And I know this because I've made this mistake, Ryan. Years ago, I, 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 said, I told my team, this is before I started my own company, I had a team and I said, I believe in teamwork. The team matters most. And I hired this one person and she worked really hard and got a lot done, but she wasn't a team player. Hmm. And you know something? I promoted her. And my staff came to me and they said, what are you doing? And I said, what do you mean? They said, she's not a team player and you know it. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm such a fool. (laughs) And so I tried to get this woman to change her behavior. She couldn't do it. And then it was a big company that I worked in. So I I found it. I wasn't the CEO, but I found another place in the company for her to work. So I didn't just go fire her, but I knew there were other departments that she could shine in. And here's the thing, Ryan, and here's what we have to realize. When I let, when I moved her out of my department, the performance of all of my other employees went through the roof. Wow. See, we don't calculate the cost of that superstar who's not a team player. What that does to the collective um, produ- production output and, and morale of the rest of the people. So when you move that person off who's not team-oriented, everyone else shines. Wow. And yet we so often keep them because we think, well, if we lose them, what are we going to do? Well, other people will step up. Hmm. No kidding. Teamwork is that powerful. It is. Yeah, it really is. And first off, a great lesson. And number two, obviously, we learn from our mistakes. And sometimes our, our biggest mistakes can be our greatest lessons learned, as you know, you've demonstrated with your own example right there, which, you know, I think there's a lot of companies out there that maybe have all-stars on their team that they really feel handcuffed to. And I'm talking personally, I'm thinking about these yeah. people top of mind. Obviously, I'm not going to say who it is, but I know people out there who have amazing people, all-stars, people who are, are great with the media, great with social media, they have great reputations, but they are not team players. It's their way or the highway. They create 
disruption mm. in the organization. They've disrupted culture, and yet they feel handcuffed to them. They say, I don't want to let them go because if I let them go, they're going to go to the competition. They're going to take all the business. I think it's really important when you shared that message there to say, listen, when we let that person move on to a different area in the department, or if you let that person go, like your example there that you just shared with us from the um, uh, the CEO of Ford, was that if you let these people go, it probably won't be the worst thing for you. If you have the right training, if you have the right mentality, if you know the value of a team and how to build teamwork, then that can be a competitive advantage for you in the way. And you know, I can't tell you how many CEOs, when they finally make the decision to let that person go, and people listening to this that are managers or leaders will know this too, they always look back and go, oh my gosh, I should have done that a long time ago. Mm, right. They never go, man, that was a bad decision. They always say, why didn't I do that earlier? And, and I always <laughs> say, because you're a wuss. Because <laughs> I am too. Because I am too. But it's true. They never, and the people around them are always like, thank you so much. Mm. And they're like, why didn't I do it earlier? And they're like, because you were calculating the very short-term cost of letting them go um, rather than the yeah. long-term one. Now, here's the thing. It's not always a buy-sell decision, though. It's really a confront them, let them know you're not going to tolerate that and then let them opt in or out like Alan Mulally did. The problem is if they don't opt in, you have to accommodate them outward. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, and there, you'll always be, I mean, it's really 99 out of 100 times leaders are like, man, I, if I'd have done that earlier, it'd be even better. Mm. Great takeaways for all the CEOs and all the leaders out there listening right now. So, Pat, why don't we crack right into this? So now we got golden nugget number two, which breaks us into the pyramid itself, right at the foundation. Dysfunction number one. A lack of trust is at the root of dysfunctional teams. So when people on a team, they don't trust each other, the team, they become afraid to communicate honestly and openly. They hide their real thoughts. They hide their feelings. Uh, they're not willing to take responsibility because they're scared of making mistakes. If team members can't communicate honestly, they will never build a foundation of trust. Help us understand what trust is in the context of a business then tell us how we can begin building trust on a team. Yeah, trust is, is one of those concepts that sounds very simple. And it, I suppose in many ways it is, but it, it's also misunderstood. And um, a lot of people think of trust as the kind that you get when you've known somebody for a long period of time, and you can predict their behavior. I call that predictive trust. Well, I know Bill, and he's, this is how he is, so this is what he's going to do. I can trust him. That's not what makes a team great. Trust on a team is what I call vulnerability-based trust. Mm. Vulnerability-based trust is when people on a team can and will be completely buck naked with each other, if you will. They will admit what they're not good at. They will tell people when they've made a mistake, when they don't know the answer. They'll, they'll honor somebody else's superiority over them in a given area or when they have a better idea. And they'll even apologize without hesitation when they're, when they're just behaving poorly. Right. When, you get your, when you can break down a team so where everybody gets to the place where they can admit what they don't know and they can be that raw with one another, it changes everything. Mm. This is the single most important thing we need to do on teams is build in vulnerability. And the good news is that most people want to be vulnerable. It's mm -hmm. very liberating to come to work oh, yeah. and be able to say, I screwed up, I need help, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry, I made a mistake, or you're better than I am at that. Can you teach me how to do that? Because, mm -hmm. man, you're really good at that, and I'm not. When people get to that place, working gets more more um, more fun, more enjoyable, less political, and more gets done. Yeah. And it's so liberating, but it requires the leader to go first. The leader of the team has to demonstrate that he or she is willing to be completely vulnerable, and it's a leap of faith. And that will inspire the rest of the team to do it, which is why when a leader does it and, and expects that from other people, everything changes. Trust is so foundational and fundamental because without it, you're not gonna you're not gonna overcome the other four dysfunctions. That's right. And with it, you find that there's just it's it's like a breath of fresh air, man. Like when you enter into a team that at its base has a foundation of trust and it starts at the top of the leader, all of a sudden you come into the meeting room and it is like a breath of fresh air. You can tell that there's yeah. no ego, there's no politics, there's vulnerability across here. It's like, you know what, Ryan, you got to do this because you're better at this. I I'm terrible at that. I suck at this. You know, and it's like, hold on a second. Did the leader just say he sucks at something and he's not good at something? It's like, holy crap, like this is actually really cool. And when you bring people into an environment like that, they feel liberated and they're like, I guess it's okay for me to be crappy at something and to admit to my flaws 
and not pretend that I got it all figured out all the time because that's where you start to make mistakes. That's where ego builds up. That's where politics form. That's where lies start to happen. And it it just becomes a disaster as you know so well. So when you see a leader starting there, man, it's, it's a cool place to work when you have a leader who does that. That's for sure. People will walk through walls of fire for a leader that can say, listen, I know I'm not perfect. And I know that you guys are even smarter than me and better at me at some things. And I will be the first to recognize that. And I'll be the first to call out my weaknesses. People are like, I will walk through fire with it for you. Mm-hmm. When a leader pretends that they have their stuff together and they expect everybody else to pretend to, everybody's trust in that person goes down. And they realize I can only trust him or her as far as their ego will let me. Mm. And, and it's so ironic because... The culture says you have to always be on, you always have to be confident and self-assured, and that's the opposite. That's how you lose credibility. Mm. So, so if someone's out there listening right now and Cut the Crap Podcast Nation, well, you're out there listening right now and you're saying, listen, Ryan, Pat, I, I get it. You know, if, if the leader buys in and the leader at its base, you know, is, is willing to be vulnerable and we can build that foundation of trust, that's great. But that's not going to happen in our organization. You know, our leader is just too egocentric, you know, never thinks they're, they're wrong, always thinks they're right. For the person out there who's thinking this right now, Pat, is it possible to start a groundswell and start this from the employee base that moves upwards? Or is it not possible? Is it only possible to start top down? Well, first, what I would say is this. Many leaders seem like they're not interested in this because it seems risky. Mm. And so it, what they need is somebody to be kind enough and, and courageous enough to help them in a humble way see the benefits of this. And there's, there's exercises that we take people through that even somebody who doesn't think they want to be vulnerable, you can do that with them and they go, oh, actually, this is good. Hmm. But so, so what I say is don't give up on your leader. Don't assume that just because they seem not to want to be vulnerable that they're not willing to. And be that person, who, you know, when I started my career, I was the person people shoved into the CEO's office and said, you tell him. And I didn't even report to the CEO. And, but they'd go, he listens to you. Because I had the, I thank God I had the courage to, to go in and kindly tell him things he were hard to hear, but in a way that didn't make him feel demeaned. And he rewarded me for that. Now, and most times they either reward you or ignore you. They don't fire you. So don't give up. Try to, try to realize that CEO is just, a, just an older kid like everybody else, mm. and they need to feel that it's okay to do that. Now, mm. if you do that and you realize, hey, this guy, this gal is not interested in being vulnerable, they just are not going to do it. I've tried, and I realize that it's – then you have to accept that and, and, and follow Stephen Covey's advice, which is focus on your circle of influence mm-hmm. versus your circle of concern. That's right. And that is – do the most that you can do in your department. Do the most you can do in the area you work. And hopefully that leader will see what's going on and will say, well, maybe I need to look at this. Mm-hmm. Now, if you realize the leader is absolutely opposed to it, they don't want to do it, they don't appreciate when others do it, realize that there's a ceiling in terms of your success and satisfaction in that organization. Maybe it's a ceiling you can live with, but the biggest impediment to employee satisfaction and performance of an organization is the unwillingness of leaders to be human. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you've done everything you can and you know that's the case, there's nothing wrong with polishing up your resume and thinking about <laughs> making a move. Right. But don't do it too soon because so many leaders who look like they're invulnerable, they really do want to be vulnerable. They've just never been shown how to do it in a safe way. I love that. Pat's giving all of you out there and Cut the Crap Podcast Nation permission permission to push back, right? We had Seth Godin on the show a couple weeks ago talking about linchpin and He's talking about creating change, being bold, um, you know, having this idea top of mind and really driving change. Be that linchpin. Be that person to drive change. Yep. Buy the book. Give the book to the person. Share this episode with your CEO. Whatever you have to do, start planting those seeds. Be bold. And the key to doing it, Ryan, is be bold but, and always be humble. It's that combination. When you go to a leader and go, listen, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you I could do your job because I can't. But there's some things I want to share with you, not out of superiority, but because I care and I want to serve you. And I've learned about this in my career because I've made mistakes and I was really, I benefited from this. So here's this book or this concept, and I think it could help you because, and it's not because I'm condescending to you, it's because I want to help. Hmm. Very few people in the world are going to hear that and go, get the hell out of my office. (laughs) But when you walk in and you go, you're a real (laughs) a-hole, they're not going to listen to whatever you have to say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so let's let's go into the next one. So we have a foundation of trust. Now we move up to the next level. 
confrontation, which leads us to golden nugget number three, which is dysfunction number two, a fear of confrontation. Now, most people, yeah. they see conflict as a negative thing, but constructive conflict, it's an important aspect on a team so that team members, they can discuss openly, they can discuss freely, and this will help them make the best decisions possible. So to make confrontations more useful and more frequent, we need to get everyone to accept the idea that confrontation and conflict are in fact necessary goods. So Pat, yes. Pat, how do we go about doing this for organizations who you know are scared of conflict, people who are scared of conflict? Yeah, and, that, and that's the, mo- the majority of them. There's far too little conflict in most organizations. Now understand this though, if there's not trust, if people are not vulnerable with each other, conflict is not a good thing. Hmm. Because then, then you're saying things and you know that that person is not going to respond honest. They're not going to admit when they're wrong. They're not going to take it well. That's why you have to start with trust. When people are vulnerable, then conflict becomes nothing but the pursuit of truth or the best possible answer. Think about it. I'm not arguing with you because I want to win because I'm vulnerable enough to admit if I'm wrong. I'm arguing with you because I, st- I think my idea is the right one, and I don't want to let down our customers or our employees or the rest of the organization. Right. So it's, it's trust that enables conflict. But even when there's trust, some people don't want to engage in conflict because they feel like, gosh, it seems like I'm being mean. I know that sounds crazy. But the idea of being I, – I, if I'm a team player, I shouldn't, I shouldn't argue with other people. <laughs> And it's just not the way it is. And we know this in our marriages. In the best marriages, mm. people argue because they care about their family. And at the end of the argument, people go, okay, that was good. We made a better decision as a result of that. But we don't do it enough in our organizations because we're afraid that people are going to falsely accuse us of not being a team player. When in reality, challenging people around their ideas is necessary to be a great team player. Now, We do have to understand that conflict is going to look different from one culture to another. Every company, every culture, every family is going to be a little different. Mm -hmm. You go to Japan and you act like an Italian and they're going to, (laughs) they're going to throw you out of the room. You know, I'm Italian and Irish, you know, American. And, and so in Japan, you know, if you disagree with somebody really strongly, you nod your head and you say, yes, yes. And then you suck through your teeth. Hmm. That's how you know somebody in Japan is really disagreeing with you. Of course, in Italy, they're going to give you a a hand signal (laughs) that's that's going to look like something else. And that just means, hey, I don't think this is the greatest idea. And I love, and because you're Canadian, I love when I talk to Canadians because they're all like, why do you call it conflict? Can't we just call it constructive disagreement? (laughs) And I'm like, no, you Canadian, this conflict. (laughs) Embrace it. We're so nice. (laughs) Because, you know, they're so nice. And it's okay to be nice. It's okay to be nice, whether you're Japanese, Italian, Canadian. The question is this. Are people on your team holding back? They cannot do that. Mm-hmm. If there's something that's, that's important at all, people have to be willing to disagree. They have to disagree around the issue or the idea. And when they don't, and this is what I always tell people to convince them, Ryan, when they don't disagree with their colleagues around an idea or an issue and they, put, they, they pack it away someplace, it will inevitably ferment into conflict around the person. When we don't have conflict around issues, it becomes later conflict around a person, and that's what destroys teams and really hurts them. Oh, that's a great insight. We go, I don't want to, I don't, I won't challenge them around that. But you get frustrated, Mm -hmm. you hold it inside, and eventually, I don't know if it's later in a performance review or in a meeting five months later, it comes out in a very unproductive way, and it's all because I never just told you about my honest feelings about this idea. Wow. I, I sit and I sit and ponder on that thought, and I hope all of you out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation sit and ponder on that as well, because I can go back in my mind right now and think of examples where, you know, a person was made to be, you know, the scapegoat. Oh, this person was the one that screwed it up, and why was it? We didn't have enough conflict on the team. There was not enough conflict around certain issues, certain debates, and it was just very laissez-faire kind of attitude where we're just going to let this one go through and see what happens. And if it failed, it was right. that person's fault. It was that person's fault. They screwed it up. It's like, hold on a second. No, it wasn't my fault. We were fault. all there. Yeah. We were all at that meeting, and nobody ever goes, man, I'm really glad we didn't have conflict. It didn't go well, but it's better than having a difficult conversation <laughs> at, the, at the meeting when we planned this. Mm-hmm. I find that when you have the foundation of trust, yeah. disagree with me if, 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 it's, if it's wrong, but I find that when you have the foundation of trust, for some reason, for some reason in, in the organizations that I've worked with, 
the conflict just comes naturally. Why? Because we trust each other and it's okay. We can yeah. have conflict. We can raise our voices. And myself, I have an Italian background too. So I tend to get a little bit animated. I gesticulate a lot. And, and everyone who's ever worked with me, they'll always laugh and they'll say, man, Ryan brings energy and aggression in the boardroom. But you know, it's, it's a good thing because it comes from a place of trust. And he's just very passionate about, about what, what we're talking about. At the very end of it, we can go for beers. We can laugh. We can pat each other on the shoulders exactly. afterwards. You know, and it's it's a breath of fresh air for people coming into the organization. They say, wow, I'm entering myself into a kick-ass culture because these guys just went at it in the boardroom and they're walking out laughing, talking about what they're doing this evening. It's just like, this is crazy. You know something? <laughs> we had a situation here in the summer months where we had our windows open in my office <laughs> and we got into a big argument, but it, but we weren't. It wasn't going to hurt our relationship. We were just passionate. And somebody from the office downstairs, a different company, came up the stairs and knocked on the door and said, "Are you okay?" And we're like, <laughs> "Yeah, why?" We heard the yelling. We're like, "Oh yeah, we were just making a decision." <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, but and, that happens all the time, man, all the time. But you raise a good point too. It starts with trust. That's why we have an online team assessment. People fill it out, and it gives them red, yellow, green on the five dysfunctions, right? Mm-hmm. And we tell them if you're green on trust, which is good and red on all the others, still start with trust because anything you can do to strengthen your trust is going to make it over easier to overcome the other things. Absolutely. It starts there. Absolutely. And by the way, Ryan, the process of building trust, you talk about things like how'd you grow up and what's your personality and how does God wire you differently than me? So you realize some people are more geared toward you know, animated conflict, some people aren't, and you find your level as a team. Yeah. And I'll realize, oh, I have a person on my team who never saw their parents argue. They're an ISFJ. And I'll go, that's a Myers-Briggs term. Mm-hmm. And I'll think, okay, I need to draw them out. I can't expect them to jump up on the desk and scream at me when they disagree. Right. So I know that, and I tr- we trust each other, and we get each other, and I can say, okay, Tracy, tell me what you think, because I know you probably don't want to yell at me about this, <laughs> but you might. And they're like, okay, Pat, I will. Right. So the trust building process enables us to engage in better conflict. Absolutely. And I think as part of trust building, it's it's steeped in empathy, you know, seek first to understand. And uh, I, I believe you have to have some a level of emotional intelligence. Because if I go into a boardroom right. and I start yelling and gesticulating and getting very passionate about it, but I... I'm not aware that I'm in a room with a whole bunch of people who are, you know, a little bit more introverted, a little bit more shy. Well, then I just kind of look like I'm, I'm becoming a bully, right? And so you got to yep. really read the team. You got to understand your team. That's where really the foundation of trust comes in is understanding who's, who are the team players, you know, what are their strengths? How do they act? You know, have some empathy for them, understand where they're coming from, understand what their mode of communication is and talk with them, not... Well, they said, you know, Pat and Ryan said conflict is okay. So next meeting, I'm going into the boardroom. I think they trust each other. You know, we've been been together for five, ten years as a company. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to start raising conflicts. Like, no, hold on a second. We have to understand how everyone kind of communicates together as a team and make sure that everyone's sort of on board with trusting one another, that we have this trust. And when we have this trust and we all know we're coming from the same place, then at that point, it gives us all permission to have healthy conflict on the team. But again, you need some context in that. I don't want people to kind of mistake our conversation here and say, well, conflict's good. I'm going to go in and start yelling. No, no, no. It has to be some context. No, no, no. Yeah. You might have a team that's very demure in the way they do it, but nobody holds back and they challenge each other, but they do it pretty calmly. But it's still without hesitation. That's great conflict. Yes. You could have a team in, in New York. I like to talk about New York. Like that people scream at each other, but they don't trust each other. That's mm-hmm. called bad conflict. Mm-hmm. It's, it starts with if you trust each other and you're honest with each other and you never hold back, you're mastering good conflict. Absolutely. Well, man, I'm telling you, we could, we could spend probably three hours talking about this, but I promised yeah. the, the audience to go through this fast. So I got to go through the next few golden nuggets here. Golden nugget number four, dysfunction number three, absence of commitment. If they're, if they're not being honest each, with each other in conflict, mm-hmm. they're not going to, Ryan, they're just not going to get to commitment at the end of the conversation. They're not going right. to get true commitment. Now, what's going to happen is somebody's going to nod their head and smile and go, okay, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. But they're not really committed to it. They're going to go back to their, their office and people are going to say, what do you think about that decision? And they're going to roll their eyes and go, yeah, I don't think it's the right thing. Yeah, and they're not yeah. going to really dive in. They're, not going to be, they're going to be passively committed. It would be better if they were actually like you see in TV and the movies where they actually like sabotage decisions because <laughs> at least it would be more interesting. <laughs> what they do is something far more passive and boring and dangerous. And they just go and they just – I like to say they alligator arm things. You know, they don't reach out to help. They just like, oh, okay, I'll do whatever. Yeah. And then two months later, everything blows up, and the leader pulls people in a room and says, "What's going on?" And people say, "I never thought it was the right idea in the first place." Mm. 
see, that's why conflict begets commitment. The model builds on itself. You have to trust each other in order to engage in good conflict. And that conflict is what enables you at the end of the conflict to make a decision that people buy into. It doesn't mean they have to agree. It doesn't mean I'm not a believer in consensus. What I'm a believer in is everybody speaks their mind. Everybody puts their ideas out there. The leader takes it all in. And if there's not a natural consensus, the leader breaks the tie and everybody truly commits to that decision. Here's the thing, Ryan. People who don't agree but who know that they've been heard and they know that their ideas have been considered and factored into the ultimate decision have an immense capacity to, 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 to buy into something that even if it wasn't their idea. Mm-hmm. People who have never weighed in and feel like they haven't been heard are not going to commit to something even if they're largely in agreement with it. That's right. Collaboration, not consensus, right? Exactly. And what I like to say, if people don't weigh in, which is commit c- conflict, they don't buy in, mm. which is commitment. It's like, imagine you're getting your kids, you've got to move from Winnipeg to, to Montreal or something for whatever reason. You sit down with your kids and you talk about it. You let them weigh in and you go to, and you go, what are we going to do? Well, here's the deal. Here's why we're going to do it. If you listen to them and you heard them and you can explain your decision in the context of their input, they're much more likely to go, okay, we can do this. But if you say, listen, I've made the decision, don't really want to hear from you, I don't think it would be that helpful, they're not going to commit. Even if they nod their head and they go along with it, and they're, going to be, they're going to resist for years. Right. Yeah, you have the base of trust. You have conflict. Like you said, conflict, when you have conflict, it, it, it unlocks commitment. But what happens if, if, if people aren't committed to a certain strategy? So, for example, we're running a go-to-market strategy and um, some people disagree with the way that, you know, we're going to go to market. I, I believe we should go to market with, with test A, but, you know, we go with test B. How do you ensure that people are still working together on the team, despite the fact that, you know, their ideas were heard, right? You had half the team wanted to go with A, but instead we went with B. What do you do in a case like that? Does it just come down to effective communication to say, listen, everybody, we took all of your considerations um, or we took all of your opinions, all of your thoughts, all of your research into consideration, but we decided that it's best to go in, you know, direction B instead of direction A. You're going to have a whole bunch of people on the team who are going to be really disappointed that you didn't go with direction A. You're going to have people who might feel like, ah, you're making a mistake, you know, despite the fact that we have trust, despite the fact that we have conflict, by kind of splitting it up and making a a concrete decision that goes against other people. How do you you deal with that as, as an executive? How do you deal with that as a manager? Yeah, so let me try to play that out. So if I'm a leader and I say, listen, you guys and gals, let's argue about this. Because I, I need to hear what everybody thinks. And at the end of the discussion, you know, three people on the team want decision A, three want decision B. One of them wants a decision C. They want to do a hybrid thing. Mm-hmm. And I sit there and I wrestle with them and I realize I've heard them and nobody's felt, you know, nobody's felt the press. They can't. Everybody said their thing. It's my job at that point to say, listen, I'm going to break the tie. And you guys might be right, decision B. And you might be right, decision C, but based on everything I've heard, we need to settle around something and really execute well. So we're going with decision A. And here's the thing. I need your commitment, and I'm going to expect it. 99 times out of 100, they go, sure. I've seen it happen many times. Mm. And, and, and then you say, and I'm going to hold you accountable for that. And they're like, great. Because what it comes down to is what we said earlier. Are, you, are they there because they want to win, because they want to do well, or because they want to get their way? Right. Now – now, when you see one of them, this brings us to the next thing, mm-hmm. if you will, to golden nugget number five, five. which is function right. number four, which is because it, you ask a really good question. When you know they've committed to the decision, when you've said, I need your commitment, and they say, yes, I'm in, even still, they're, they're going to be tempted to kind of stray from it from time to time, like, well, maybe my idea was better. And that's where the next thing comes in, and you have to be willing to hold them accountable for what you're committing to. And the whole team has to be willing to hold one another accountable when someone strays from the decision. Mm-hmm. See, if, and that's why commitment's so important, because if I go to a meeting and I know people didn't really commit, how much courage am I going to have as their team member, as their teammate, or their leader, but the teammate in particular, to say to them, hey, you're not doing what we agreed to. If I know they rolled their eyes and they never were heard and they never, fe- they never really weighed in, then I'm going to be like, I'm not going to tell them because they didn't like the idea in the first place. But if I went to that meeting and we had it out, and at the end of the meeting we said, okay, we are all going to do plan A, now I will be much more likely to have the courage 
to say, hey, we talked about this. Why are you, why are you, you're starting to look like plan B again. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. One of the things I always say is when we talk about accountability, though, it's not the leader who should be the primary source of accountability. If we all discussed it and made a decision together and, and, and committed to, to, to a certain way of doing things, the leader should not be the primary source of accountability. It should be team members. The best teams in the world do not rely on the leader to hold people accountable. They do it with one another. It's more efficient. It's, more, it's quicker. It's, it's more powerful because the idea of letting down one of your teammates is far more distasteful oh, yeah. than getting a bad performance review. Mm-hmm. The problem is, and the irony is, Ryan, the only way to get people to hold each other accountable on a team is if the leader is not afraid to do it himself or herself. And I'm terrible at this. <laughs> this is the thing I like the least about being a leader is having to tell somebody, listen, this isn't good enough, yeah. or you're not doing what we agreed to. I love to tell them when they do something well. I love to, I don't mind an yeah. argument, but when I have to sit down with somebody and go, hey, you're not actually cutting it, and you need to change. Yeah. Now, I've learned to do it, but if I'm not willing to do that as a leader, if I'm what I call a wuss, <laughs> then the people in my office are going to be wusses too, because they're going to go, why should I do something that you're not willing to do, Pat? That's right. Why should I be should, should confront one of my team members about something if you're not willing to do it because you're going to let them off the hook anyway. Mm-hmm. You notice that in a lot of companies where the leader might, you know, the team, for example, holds each other accountable, but if the leader is kind of wishy-washy, kind of lets things go, it makes it okay for everybody to be wishy-washy and let things go as well. It, you know, it's, it's very tough to keep people accountable. It makes it a little bit awkward. But I'm telling you, again, if you have from the base, the foundation, you have trust, you have conflict, you have commitment, accountability becomes so much easier. But accountability is really tough, as you say, you know, especially if people out there are are a little bit soft, they're a little bit wussy. And let's just not call them wusses or soft. Let's just say they like to be liked. People like to be liked. They don't want to give they don't want to give people bad news and news that says, hey, you know, you're just not you're just not cutting it or something's not right here. It's really, really tough. It's one of those things you have to do. You have to keep people accountable. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. It does. And what's interesting about it is the, your best performers are the ones when, when they know that the leader and team members are not holding people accountable, best performers get really frustrated. And they're the ones that are going to leave first. They want to be on a team with really high standards. So when we as a leader say, well, I don't want to make this person feel bad, and I don't want them to dislike me, and I don't want it to be uncomfortable. I'm just not going to hold them accountable. Just know that your best performers are going, okay, <laughs> then I, this isn't a place for me. Yeah, that's right. And that's usually what scares leaders into doing it. The other thing that I scare leaders in, that I use to scare leaders into doing this is when I say to them, you know something? I know you think you're caring about that person, and you don't want to hold them accountable because you don't want them to feel bad, but really – you're doing it for yourself because you just don't want them to be mad at you. But in the end, they're not going to respect you when it's going to bite them on a performance review or when the team gets frustrated with them or when this fails and people blame them. And you're, you're going to realize, yeah, I didn't tell you. I didn't confront you because I didn't want to be unpopular. And, and you threw them under the bus. So if you love the people that work for you, and I hope that leaders do, even if you don't like them all the time, you should love them. If you love them, you'll tell them what they need to hear to get better. That's right. Confronting them and holding them accountable is, is an act of love. And I, that's not touchy-feely, it's just real. I learned that as a parent. You know, If I want my kids to be better, I have to hold them accountable. And there's those moments when I don't want to hold them accountable, and I'm like, I'm letting them down. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. things happens at work. It's funny, there's a story that I had... Um... I had Kim Scott on the show not too long ago. She wrote a book called Radical Candor, and she tells a story about how when she went up on stage, uh, her boss at the time, Sheryl Sandberg, pulled her aside and uh, gave her some of the hardest advice, some of the hardest career advice she's ever received. She said it made her feel really upset, a little bit awkward. But now she goes, I'm so glad she did. So she got off stage, the, the long story short, Kim got off stage and she did her big speech and Cheryl looks at her and she goes, can we talk for a second? Kim says, for sure, let's talk, let's chat a little bit. So Cheryl sits her down. She goes, you know what, like, have you thought about maybe doing a little bit of presentation classes, maybe some Toastmasters? And she kind of danced around it a little bit. And uh, Kim says, no, no, I feel comfortable on stage. Ah, It's great. It feels good, you know. And so Cheryl cuts right through the crap and she goes, okay, listen, Kim, I can tell that you're not hearing me. I can tell that the message is not being received. So I have to tell you. 
When you stand on stage and you say mmm and ah every third word, you sound stupid and you need training to get that out of you. All of a sudden, Kim just boom, she, she received that message loud and clear and she said, oh my God. But she had a lot of respect for Cheryl. Cheryl had a lot of respect for Kim. They came from a base of trust. Conflict was not uh, uncommon to them. And so as a result, that advice took her to another level altogether. Now, Kim Scott, she's, she's doing speaking tours all over the place. She's got her book. And when I had her on the show, she goes, I, I still thank Cheryl to that, for, for that advice yep. to this day. And it's tough. It's really tough to sometimes give that kind of hard advice. But I'm telling you, sometimes you give that hard advice, it can take somebody in a completely different career direction. It can change them for the better. And you as a leader out there listening to the Crap Podcast Nation, don't be afraid of having those tough conversations because sometimes it's those tough conversations that will take people to the next level. Absolutely. But if you're not willing to tolerate their dissatisfaction with you in the short term, you'll never do it. Mm. In other words, she, you have to be comfortable with them for a while going, I can't believe they said that to me. And it's like, well, I, 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 my intentions are pure. I want to help you. They don't always thank you right away. <laughs> when I was a, when I was a, a younger parent, I had, I have four boys and, and my twins are now 20, mm. but when they were seven years old, Ryan, I was telling bedtime stories to them. And right before we started, my wife put one of my twins, Matthew, into timeout. Mm. So he didn't get to stay. So I, I was telling this story to Connor, my other twin, and halfway through the story, Matthew comes in and he says, are you not finished? I said, no, we're about halfway through. And he said, can I stay for the second half of the story? And because I'm a wussy dad, I'm like, sure. You know? <laughs> My wife comes in and sees him and she goes, what's he doing in here? And I said, well, he missed the first half of the story, so I thought he could stay for this. She says, no, <laughs> Matthew, you're in timeout. So he does the full on walk of shame. Get this. My other seven-year-old, he sees that I'm sad for Matthew. He, turn, he says to me, Hey, Dad, if you don't hold him accountable, he's never going to learn the consequences of his actions. <laughs> That's a true story. My seven-year-old told me that because awesome. we all know we need to be held accountable. Now, that doesn't mean that that same seven-year-old was going to ask me to hold him accountable, but he knows that it's in their best interest, and our employees do too, and yet we still opt out because it's uncomfortable. <laughs> That's an awesome story, man. I love it. Don't it's you a true that, one, too. Don't you just love I have to ask my wife. Like I'm not making that up. That really happened, right? Because I remember in there, like, yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Your kids are reading your books. Good on you, man. Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's crack into the last golden nugget here. Let's finish up the episode. Golden nugget number six, dysfunction number five, failure to focus on goals. So take us through this one, Pat. So, so it's, it's all about teamwork is ultimately, and this is great for cut the crap, it's all about results. You know, in other words, the collective results of the team, the goals, that's what demonstrates great teamwork. People say, do you have a good team? And they're like, oh, yeah, our team was great. How many games did you guys win last year? Oh, none, but we had a great team. It's like, no, you had a crappy team that liked each other. And while there's some merit to that, that's not what teamwork is about. Teamwork is about accomplishing what you set out to accomplish. It's not always about, it's not always about money. It's whatever, whatever your goal is that you're trying to make this organization do, if you're a great team, you will see results. Now, people will say, but, but of course you're going to see results. Why wouldn't people be results-focused? What's going to happen on a bad team is the individuals on that team are going to be focused on their own results. Mm -hmm. They're going to focus on their own silo, their own department, their division, their career, their bonus. It has to be the collective results of the team taking precedent over the individual results of the team members. They have to set aside their own individual needs for the good of the collection. That is easier said than done because we don't come out of the womb looking out for the team. We come out looking for ourselves, That's right. which is why you need that trust and conflict and commitment and accountability to leave no wiggle room for people to be focused on themselves over the good of the team. And in an organization that's large, Ryan, that means that the head of marketing has to say, I care more about the executive team than I do about the marketing department that I that I lead. Even though I hired them, I sit near them, I like marketing, I like hanging around with them, the most important team has to be the one at the top. Hmm. Because if you're not doing what's in the best interest of the company as a leader, and you're more worried about your department, then you become like the United Nations or Congress where people get together to lobby for their hmm. constituents. And, you know, in the world of sports, I like to think about years ago in basketball when Scottie Pippen was the best player on the Chicago Bulls after Jordan retired. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they were in the playoffs, 
and he refused to go in the game at the end of a game because the coach wasn't going to let him take the last shot to win the game. And the fact that he would, in front of everybody, say, I really don't care about the team, it's about me. I'm the best player, I should get to do this. Hmm. Think about the fact that, I, li- I like to joke around and say, I wish every team I worked with had people with the courage and audacity of Scottie Pippen <laughs> who could stand up in front of everybody and say, listen, you guys, I don't really care about the team, it's about me, because then we'd know who to fire. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that would, be, that would make life a lot easier. <laughs> That's right. But people don't do that. They go to off-sites and they nod their head and they smile and they say they're going to commit and then they go and do what's in their own best interest. Mm-hmm. Which is why some people will say, Pat, can we just skip through it through and go to accountability and results? You know, let's just hold <laughs> people accountable for the results. <laughs> but they didn't commit. That's right. And they haven't weighed in. And they don't trust each other. That's right. So they all lead. They all fit together. That's right. The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Pat Lencioni. Pat, I'm telling you, man, it's such a pleasure having you on the show. And, you know, this book was written so long ago. What was it? I think this was maybe 2017 years. 17 years ago, man. That's that's incredible. I finished but, it. I finished it two days after 9/11. I remember because wow. I put a little tribute to the fire to the rescuers in there about teamwork, and so it came out in 2002. But I finished writing it in 2001. No kidding. So you have a follow up to this one called the Ideal Team Player. So for people out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation, if if you've already read this book or if you want to read this book, you're gonna go pick it up. I highly recommend you pick up his next book, or Pat's next book, The Ideal Team Player, the sequel to The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Maybe, Pat, just give us a quick, um, you know, cut the crap podcast synopsis of that book for people who are interested. I was not going to write this book, and I, and w- because people said to me, well, Pat, are some people naturally better at doing this five dysfunction stuff? Years ago, they asked me that, and I said, I don't know. And then over time, we figured out, actually, they were. We found out about it accidentally. Again, most of my books are accidental. Mm-hmm. That we, there's these three qualities that we've been using in hiring, and many of our clients have, that if you find people with these three qualities, they, they map on well to people that can do this. And those three qualities are they're humble. They're not about themselves. They're about others. They're not egotistical or arrogant. So humility. These are so simple. I can't believe it, Ryan. In fact, I wasn't even going to write this book because it was so simple. And people, and it's selling faster than any book I've ever written. Wow. And, because it's even more simple, more cut the crap. And it's humble. And then they also have to be, the second quality is they have to be hungry, which is they have to be, have a work ethic and a passion. They want to go above and beyond. They don't want to just do the minimum. And the third one, and you alluded to this earlier, is they have to be smart, but not intellectually smart, emotionally smart. Mm-hmm. They just have to know how to read a room and to know what, how their words and actions affect others. And if you can find people that have all three of those, humble, hungry, and smart, they're going to slide in and be an awesome team player. But if they're missing even one of those at a pretty high level, it's going to be tough. If they're, if they're missing um, – if they're not very smart – they're what's called an accidental team player. Mm. They're humble and hungry. They get a lot done. I mean, they're an accidental mess maker. Right. They, they get a lot done, but you've got to clean up after them afterward. They've got to do a lot of apologies. And, and, and I have a lot of time for this, mm-hmm. but they just kind of make a mess. If they're, if they're lacking um, hard work, if they're not hungry, mm-hmm. they're what's called the lovable slacker. Mm. They're humble, and they're good with people, but you just, they never get a lot done, and you've got to kind of – people have to cover for them. Right. But the most – the most dangerous one is when they lack humility, hmm. but they're hungry and they're smart. Oh, That's yeah. what we call the skillful politician because they know how to fake being a team player and being humble, but deep down inside, they're all about themselves. That's the one you can't hire people like that. So we have hiring criteria and interview questions to how to find people that are humble, hungry, and smart because if you can do that, it's gonna be, the organization is going to be so much easier. Oh, I love it, Pat. I love it. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I might have to get you back on the show to talk about that book, man. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it, it works really well with this book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And everyone out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation, if you are interested in picking this book up, pick it up. Go out there while you're at it. Pick up the second book, Ideal Team Player. And, uh, you know, we'll have to get Pat back on the show talking about that one as well. But, uh, Pat, man, it's such a pleasure having you on the show. Such great energy. Um, for people, it's a blast for me, too. Hey, man, I'm glad. I'm glad. But, you know, for anyone out there who wants to follow you along um, and want to follow you on social media, they want to see what you're up to, how can they go about connecting with you? Well, you know, it, our website has a bunch of free resources on it. Like, one is called the... Um the hub. You go to our website and there's this thing called the hub and we have all these free articles and downloadable things and and uh, so there's all kinds of stuff there on our website that's free and uh, that's probably the best way to do it. We have folks in our office tweeting out stuff and, and, and doing LinkedIn but that's the best place. Perfect. Excellent. Tablegroup.com. There we go. 
Wonderful. Well, Pat, again, thank you so much for making time for myself and for everyone out there on Cut the Crap Podcast Nation. Man, it was a real treat having you on the show today. My pleasure. God bless you. All right. There we have it. That's Pat Lencioni, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. What a great interview. Patrick is just ball of energy, wealth of knowledge. It was such a treat having him on the show, and I can't wait to get him back on the show talking about some of his other books. It was a real treat. If you enjoyed this episode, then please go online, rate and review the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and you have the ability to rate and review the show, then please rate and review the show. Send a screen capture of that to podcast ryancalajury.com. If you're listening on Spotify or SoundCloud or anything else that doesn't allow you to leave a ranking or review, just send me an email, podcast ryancalajury.com. Let me know how much you love the show because I want to make sure all your entries are in because the end of June, I'm going to be drawing a name out of the pool of people who submitted entries. And I'm going to give away five, five, oh my God, I almost said $5,000 cash. Got to take that one back. $1,000 in cash to the lucky winner of that one. So please get your entries in. Don't forget to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Say hi. Tell me you found me through the podcast. It always means a lot to me that people connect with me online. And uh, just let me know that you found me through the show. And of course, the last one, do not forget... Go online to cutthecrappodcast.com and at the very top there, you'll see the summaries tab. Sign up for the summaries because I'm doing the written PDF summaries again. I know how much you love them and I saw just how many people opted in for them again. So if you love the episodes but you want the written summaries in PDF format, then please go online, sign up for that. I'm doing that again. I'm very excited to launch it. So please do not wait. Get on there. I'll make sure you get that in your inbox. And on that note, that is a wrap this week. So thank you so much to all of you for tuning in again this week. I know there's a lot competing for your time, a lot competing for your attention. So it means a lot to me that you tune in to me and that you're finding a lot of value in this show. So thank you so much for tuning in. And I will catch you back here next week when I have a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And of course, you know what I'm doing here every single week, just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark real change in your life. Have a fantastic week, everybody. I love you guys. Discipline is the root of all good qualities. But you have to absolutely apply it to things outside of just waking up early. It's it's everything. It's working out every day, making yourself stronger and faster and more flexible and healthier. Discipline is eating the right foods to fuel your system. It's about disciplining your emotions so you can make good decisions. It's about having the discipline to control your ego so your ego doesn't get out of hand and control you. It's about treating people the way you would want to be treated and and doing the tasks that you don't necessarily want to do but that you know will help you or help your team. It's about facing your fears. It takes discipline to face your fears so you can conquer them. And that's what discipline is. Discipline means taking the hard road, the uphill road to do what's right for yourself and for other people. so often the easy path, the easy path that calls to us to be weak for that moment, to break down for that moment, to give in to the desire and the short-term gratification. But the discipline will not allow that. The discipline calls for strength and fortitude and will. It won't accept weakness. It won't tolerate another breakdown. The discipline can seem like it's your worst enemy. But the reality is, discipline is your best friend. It will take care of you like nothing else can.
and it'll put you on that path. The path to strength and health and intelligence and happiness. And most importantly, it'll put you on that path to freedom. And I think that's all we've got for tonight.